Hey, dealmakers, and welcome to the show where it's all about financial freedom with real estate. Let's do this. You're listening to the Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing podcast, hosted by Garrett Lynch and Michael Blanc, where we talk all about how you can achieve financial independence through apartment building investing. Whether you're just starting out or you want to scale your syndication business, this is the show for you. So our guest today went from a career in corporate America to full-time investing, and today he's going to talk about how real estate is just like any other business and how he used it, of course, in a way to get out of his corporate job. Fascinating. I always love these kinds of interviews. Before we get into that, I want to give a shout out to W, I don't know, J Y Base via who left us a review on the podcast. This is a great podcast. It's a great resource to learn and listen. I recommend it to everyone. All right. So I have a quick favor to ask. If you enjoy this podcast and you think it's really making a difference in your life, then would you share this with one other person? So can you think of one person you know, that could make a difference here in their lives? Because it might help that person consider apartments as the number one way to become financially free with real estate. So if so, just share the link from your podcast app and send it to that person. So thanks so much for tuning in and for being an amazing part of our podcast community. We always highlight people who do deals. Every single week, people are doing deals. We just had Dealmaker Live a few weeks ago, and we had a stage full of people who are currently doing deals. I'm only saying that because a lot of people are saying, oh my gosh, deals can't be done. They've been saying that for, for since we've been doing this since 2014. People are, in fact, doing deals. Freedom Hall of Famer Oleg Shalimov, and when I say Freedom Hall of Famer, this is a person that has done a deal, done two deals, and now is financially free. He just closed on another deal, the 36 units in Scottsburg, Indiana, and the deal was valued at $3.3 million. He was working with one of our mentors. His name is Josh Sterling. And so congratulations to Oleg for getting that deal done as well. If you want to explore mentoring with us, we have the best program on the planet to help you become financially free with real estate. In fact, we're the only organization that guarantees that you will do your first deal in the first 12 months. And if you don't, We'll continue working with you until you do. And we can do that because we've helped so many people do their first deals following our dealmaker blueprint. So you can schedule a call with us at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor and just have a conversation to see where that would go. So with that, let's bring in our co-host, Garrett Lynch. Garrett, what's going on? What's going on, Michael? So so we are looking at, at, a, at getting into a new market, perhaps, to increase deal flow as well. When we go into a new market, Garrett, what do we look for in that new market? Well, the, the obvious things are, are population growth, rent growth, and then and job growth. I mean, everybody's looking at those things. But one of the things that you want to really focus on when you're looking at a new market are the sub-markets. Because if you take those as just a general sense, that's great. But there are good and bad areas in any market. And so the sub-markets are really what you want to study and make sure you master before you go and buy in that pocket. You want to know who the neighbors are. Are the, Is there a lot of competition in the area? Is this a property that is on the wrong side of the block where there's a lot of bad people calling in to want to rent over there? All these things matter. And not only that, the, the median household income of the area, what does that look like? Are people going to be able to afford the rents that you're projecting when they come in? Everything that you look at really will determine the success of your operation. You want to make sure there are no blind spots going into a new market, going into a new deal. And so that's why it's really a good idea to go deep in a market once you get a deal there, because you can really start to learn all the pockets. 
even better. And if you want to speed up the process and learning the pockets, the best way to do it is to chat with the brokers about the specific submarkets because they know a lot block by blocks, focus on one and then expand outwards into, into more. So you get a feel for what those submarkets look like and the temperature and how successful you're going to be by being inside of them. Okay. So it sounds like brokers are still your gateway to deals, but also in getting into a new market. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's Now, why would we want, why would anyone want to go into another market? Let's say they're looking at a particular market. Why would you want to go into a different market? So it, a couple of reasons are if you want you know, there's there's different laws that that exist in in some states versus others, so you can get some diversity if you want to go in that direction. I think there's more risk in switching operators for LPs for investors than sticking with the same operator that's going deep in a market. But if you are the operator and you want to switch it up a bit and give another a new look, that's a really good reason to go in. Is you, you're learning another one. You also increase deal flow as an operator. Because you have two pools to pick from and, and deals that come about and and there's a lot more options. And that's one of the the, the challenges bringing, with picking a market that's on maybe on a smaller side. We love Huntsville, but it's such a small market. There's We, we, can't, we can't be analyzing three deals a week. It's just not enough that volume. So we need to have either one large market or or two or three smaller markets to ensure that kind of deal flow. So that's that's one reason we would look for other markets as well. Today, our, our guest is John Kasman, and he, he was a marketing executive for General Motors, Nike, Coors Light, and he made the switch into real estate and into apartment buildings. And he really struggled with the idea of raising capital. He at first didn't even know it existed and then really struggled with it as well. So he talks about that because a lot of people struggle with raising capital and how he overcame that. So let's get right into the show here with John Kasman. John, welcome to the show today. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you how did you get started with apartments? Well, you know, like many of your listeners, I started off in corporate America with the W2 job. I actually worked in advertising and marketing for 15 years. And the first company I worked for, most people have heard of it, General Motors. But I was there from 2007 through 2011. So if you have a time machine and you remember this, that was when we went through bankruptcy. So I was there and I watched it firsthand. I watched my peers get let go. I watched the anxiety everyone had. And I realized that I really needed a plan B and real estate kind of became that plan B. So moved to Chicago in 2011 and started investing in smaller multifamily and then eventually scaling up deal after deal. And then eventually got to our first larger syndication deal, which was 192 units in San Antonio, Texas. And from there, we really never looked back. We just kind of stayed into the larger apartment buildings, partnered with other investors to scale the portfolio. Now, why did you get started with apartment buildings? There's a, there's a lot of people, they'll, you know, they'll spend years you know, investing in single family houses to, and you somehow skipped that stage. Why did you think apartments were the way to go? And, and number two, how did you have the confidence to go right into apartments? Well, the first thing was just educating myself. You know, every book I read, every, you know, now podcast, but, you know, back then it wasn't that many podcasts, but everything I read, everyone I talked to, they all said they wish they started an apartment sooner. And, you know, talking to 10, 15, 20 people, and they all say the same thing. I was like, all right, well, why don't we just start there? And it was small. It was two to four units, but it all made sense. There was a, you know, a book I read, making money or small income properties, 
Robert Kiyosaki series with Ken McElroy, all those books, you know, they talk about how to invest in smaller multifamily. So that's exactly where we started. And I was in Chicago. Chicago has a lot of two to four unit properties. So there's, mm-hmm. there are actually more two to four units than single family homes in most of the neighborhoods. So it was very common and it was an easy way to get started. So I think all of that made it easier for us. And my first property was a house hack. And if you are, you know, early in your your journey, I think it's a great strategy. We bought a two unit building. We house hacked it. We used FHA financing, just three and a half percent down. So I was able to buy this three hundred and sixty thousand dollar property, really with less than ten thousand dollars out of pocket. So great strategy to get started, and again, building the confidence and letting it snowball from there. Yeah, getting that first deal is 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 so key. Now, at one point, you probably ran out of money. How did you continue buying? What was your kind of what was your capital strategy there? That's exactly what happened. We kept running out of our own money. So we bought the three, the two unit, saved up some money, bought a three unit, saved up some money, actually did a line of credit on the first property. We bought an eight unit property. And I remember the day we closed on that eight unit, I thought I would feel this sense of, you know, euphoria and excitement. And I just kept thinking about how long it was going to take me to save money to buy another property. And I was I was really sad, you know, just like you're building this up. You know, you're doing everything the right way. But I'm looking at my bank account and I'm I'm back to broke. Right. I took this six figure check and put it on a down payment for this eight unit. And I'm right back to climbing the mountain again. And that's when I really got serious about working with other investors. And I heard of it from a conceptual standpoint, but I hadn't really considered it for myself until that point. And that's when I realized like, okay, you know what? We need to take this more seriously and learn how to work with other investors and and started down that path. So we have kind of similar backgrounds. I actually started in Chicago as well. I think we talked about this before, but we were just buying the same, these two to four units, their portfolios of them. And I don't know what what areas were you in? So I was in, on the north side. So I bought a north, north center side. in Avondale and some of those areas. Yeah, we went straight south side. We went right in and we bought portfolio packages, but had a very similar situation as far as just a lot of, a lot of these things, we run out of money. And so how did you actually make the transition out of that and into something bigger with building your relationships and getting investors? I mean, networking is so important. It's so critical. And for me, it really started with a seed being planted. So a good friend of mine, Bree Schmidt, I met her when I you know, first moved to Chicago and started attending these networking events. And when I met her, she had three units in her portfolio. And she went from three units to nine units. And then she went from nine units to 90 units. And I was just floored. I'm like, wait a minute, that doesn't compute. Like that just doesn't add up. How do you go from nine to 90 units in like less than a year? And I remember being so bothered by this and not being able to figure it out that I asked her to go to breakfast. And I took her to breakfast and I, I flat out asked her. And, I, and in my mind, I fully expected her to tell me that like she had this rich uncle or her grandfather passed away or something where she inherited all this money and was able to invest. And that's not what she told me. She told me that she actually had some investors out West who had been reaching out to her for a while and they wanted to invest with her. And she finally decided to partner with him. And that was the first time that I saw this happening in real life. Because we talked about the books and the podcasts and all the other resources, but I didn't know those people. You know, those are just, you know, figures in a book or a podcast to me. But this was someone I met, I knew in real life. I watched her go from three units to 90 units. So that notion of working with other investors became really palatable to me. And from there, I started to learn more about that process and it made it much easier. So I would say just surrounding yourself with people who are actually doing it, whether that's joining masterminds, networking events, getting a coach, a mentor, 
being around people who are really doing it, it removes some of that that concern or that risk. I think a lot of people associate with scaling or, or working with other investors. Yeah, I think it's so important to kind of help expand your your mind. You can only read so many books or podcasts before you're still you're still held back by your own experiences and limitations until you see someone else do it, or even more importantly, when do it when you do it yourself. Now, how did you like? What were some of your maybe your false beliefs or limiting beliefs around raising money? A lot of people like, "Oh, I'm I can't raise money. I've never raised money. I don't want to beg people. I don't want to ask friends and family." Like, what what were you struggling with at the time? And then, how did you actually? What was your breakthrough? When did you kind of say, "Oh my gosh, I can do this"? All of that was my you know my limiting beliefs. Right? Didn't have money myself. You know, I mean, I had some money, but not enough to to go out and buy the bigger stuff that I was looking to buy. I didn't think I had a network. You know, my family or friends didn't have money like that. I didn't want to beg people to invest with me. You know, just all of that. You know, I never really asked for money. And in my mind, everything I'd done up to that point was somewhat self-made, right? Like I'm the first person in my family to even go to college, first person to graduate. I was the youngest advertising executive at General Motors. I was a you know young rising star in the advertising world. So in my mind, all this was built off of my hard work and labor. So to go out and ask other people to invest with me, it, it just felt counterintuitive to what I wanted to do. The big breakthrough for me was recognizing that I was thinking about it completely wrong. And that started really at the time when I finished that eight unit, because I was talking to people or they were seeing me invest and they would express interest in learning more. So I would tell them how to do what I was doing. And I would just watch their eyes glaze over. Like they had no interest in learning all the things I had learned, reading all the books, attending all the, they didn't want to do that, right? But there was, there was interest in investing in real estate without necessarily being active. And now I know that as being an LP or a passive investor, and they were interested in investing, but I didn't put two and two together at that point. So the big breakthrough for me was recognizing that we had a service that we were mm. offering, you know, instead of me asking people to invest with me, I was providing an opportunity for them to make money alongside me. And it may feel like a little nuance, but it's really important. I was the one providing the opportunity, not the other way around. You know, these weren't people, you know, helping me out. And yes, I benefit, but it wasn't about them helping me. It was really about me offering a service that could help them achieve their own financial goals. And the moment I flipped that switch, and change that perspective, it made it much easier for me to talk to investors. Okay, so, so so what impact did it, give me an example of how that simple shift actually affects how you speak to people or investors? Well, yeah, so I will tell you, the, the very first deal we, we raised money on and brought in some partners, I brought in some family and friends and my brother-in-law actually invested. And he said, thank you, you know, once he kind of committed to invest. And he said, thank you when I was gonna say thank you. And it made me pause and realize all these things we talk about, the benefits of investing, cash flow, depreciation, you know, tax advantages, you know, the fact that this is a diversified investment vehicle, these are things that people want. And this was a person who was facing a six-figure tax bill if they didn't have a vehicle like this to invest in. So I helped him solve a, a challenge that he was facing. So when people are thanking you, when you are helping people achieve their own financial goals, yes, you're going to benefit. And it's easy to look at it from your lens. But when you can put yourself in their shoes, it makes it a lot easier for you to understand the value you're providing to them. So that was really key for me. And I, I think just talking to people and actually listening, you know, listening to why they are interested in investing, what are you hoping to get out of it? Mm -hmm. That allows you to know that again it's a business it's a service just like any other business right if you're a cpa or an attorney or you got any other business or service that you offer you're gonna have clients who are looking for those services this is not charity and it just it took a minute to 
process that yes, even though I'm benefiting, I'm not providing, I'm not a charity case, right? It's not, we're going out here and begging people to invest in these deals, you know, and they're never going to see anything. Like we're offering really strong returns. We're offering great investment opportunities and you have to really believe in that. So that confidence is absolutely critical. And you have to just take that time to truly understand what you're offering. How do you, you know, protect your investors and make the right investment choices when you're offering those opportunities? That's great, John. That's it's absolutely true. Going back to your location, though, you're in Chicago and you're probably at that point thinking, you know, maybe there's some better locations to get better results, right, for for these investors. Talk to us a little bit about your process of exiting Chicago like I did and maybe looking elsewhere for better services for these investors. Well, Garrett, you get it, right? Chicago is a, is a, I enjoy living in the city, you know, great city to live in. When it comes to investing, not exactly the friendliest environment to be in. So part of that process for me was recognizing that when I was looking to invest, there were certain return metrics that I was comfortable with. But when you have partners and you're given 50, 60, 70, maybe even 80% of the profits to someone else, well, those deals need to look a little bit different. And Chicago's really challenging when it comes to you know being landlord friendly and things like that. So we did start to look in other markets. I started looking at markets I was more familiar with. Cincinnati was one. My wife is from Cincinnati. I knew eventually we were going to move to Cincinnati, which is where we live now. So that was the market I looked at. But the challenge for me was really trying to learn another market. You know, like I knew in Chicago, you know, hey, if you go past Damon, the neighborhood changes. If you go north of this, that's going to be a different bracket. This is the school district. I had a hard time figuring out, like, what are those parameters in these other cities? And a lot of people I knew were all investing in Texas, not necessarily in the Midwest. So some of the things they were doing didn't really fit in my market. So I actually had to set out on a journey myself to learn this. And that kind of led me to my podcast, you know, which at that time was Target Market Insights. Now it's called Multifamily Insights. But we set out to learn how to find the best places to invest. And the reality for me was I just wanted to interview people and ask them, how are you figuring out where to invest? And after talking to so many people, you know, a lot of the similar themes kind of came up. They talked about population, talked about job growth. They talked about industry diversification, ease of doing business, multifamily trends. So you can start to take that information and create your own framework based on that. And that's exactly what we were able to do. And, you know, looking in Cincinnati and Midwest markets that are growing, we were able to apply that lens and find deals that fit our own criteria. If you want to work with a full-time syndicator to help you get up to speed faster, get your first deal done this year, and scale your portfolio so you can quit your job, then check out our mentoring program. It's at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. It's the only program out there that actually guarantees results. That's right. We actually guarantee that you do your first deal in the first year. Otherwise, we'll keep working with you. And set up a, a strategy session call and explore whether it's right for you. It's themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. You know, there's a lot of people listening, watching right now, and they're scratching their head going, man, you know, what is going on right now? And you know, maybe I should wait. You know, maybe I should just wait till this things get a little better. And I'm wondering if that's the right strategy to do, to, 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 if, if that's the right thing to do. And I know you we wrote a blog post on this 3,200 unit foreclosure in Houston on the Wall Street Journal, which we saw. And we've been spending a lot of time educating people about, you know, what that really means. But nevertheless, I'd love to hear your thoughts about what you think is went on in that particular property. You know something about it, and if that's a sign for bigger things to come. Well, you know, 
that it's always unfortunate, right? I mean, I think you come from two different mindsets. You know, if you are an abundance mindset person, you never want to see anyone struggle or, or suffer and, and have a deal fail. Obviously, as investors, we're looking for opportunities, but you never, you know, I'm not a guy who wants to celebrate someone else's failure. So I, I think it's, it's disheartening, you know, sad for the investors in that particular situation. But I think there are also a lot of red flags, and a lot of mistakes, you know, a lot of the, the basic blocking and tackling things were missed. High leverage, you know, they had a, you know, from my understanding, a C class, maybe C minus property, you know, needed a lot of work. None of that work was actually done. They did not get a rate cap. So the interest rate was floating. And as it changed, they pretty much were subjective to whatever that interest rate was. And it got to the point where they couldn't even implement their business plan. And they were just trying to stay afloat. And ultimately that ended up failing. So lots of mistakes going on there. And I would say, that person won't be the only one who who suffers that fate, unfortunately. But as investors, I think it also reinforces the fundamentals. And it's the reasons you listen to shows like this to learn how to be a solid apartment investor. It's not about there and finding the deal of the century. It's about first and foremost, preserving your capital and then figuring out ways to grow it. And if you can invest in cash flowing assets that appreciate over time in areas where there's demand, you should be okay. You know, you have to put in the right loan product or have the right, you know, checks and balances put in place. And again, that investor didn't didn't do that. And I think for all of us, it's just a reminder that the numbers don't always go up. You know, it's been a really bullish market for the last five or six years. But I think it's really important for us to recognize that those fundamentals are there for a reason. We have to make sure we pay attention to that whenever we're making an investment. So we're we're getting really good at our operations, obviously, I mean, we're as best as we could possibly be at this point, because we understand how important that is. I'm curious, what kind of things are you guys doing on your side to protect yourselves in this environment? Yeah, a couple of things. So first and foremost, I think you have to look at the business plan you have for the property, right? So if you have a business plan where let's say it's a medium value add, you're going to go in and put, you know, five, seven, ten thousand dollars per unit in increased rents. You want to make sure you're still able to do that. You know, in some markets, many markets, rents are not growing as fast as they did before. So you want to make sure that those market rents are still there. And if not, maybe you cut back on some of that spend. Maybe you hold a little bit more capital for operational reserves. So we're paying attention to those kind of things. Are we still hitting our metrics? Are they starting to soften a little bit? What pivots do we have available to us? We have some deals where we have, you know, long-term fixed debt in place. On those deals, we're kind of letting investors know, hey, you know what? If the market gets a little crazy, we're going to ride this thing out for a little bit. We're in a good place. We're cash flowing. Market's good. Long-term, we know real estate tends to go up in value. So we feel very comfortable with the long-term outlook. But again, if we have to sell in six months or 12 months, I don't know where the market's going to be. So we're paying more attention to the long game and anything that does have a short-term position, we're trying to reposition so we have more flexibility. I think flexibility is key. You know, you want to be in a position where you control the exit and not the market or not your loan. So making sure you have that flexibility based on, again, the operating capital you have, reserves, the loan you have secured, all that's really, really, really important in today's economy. Well, let's talk about that because people always say, oh, get fixed term you know, interest loans, like 12 years, lock it in, right? Like it's the safest. But but talk about how that limits the exit on um, ability to refinance or sell, because I'm not sure people are actually aware of the limitations of those kinds of loans. This is a great point, Michael, because a lot of people say, hey, you know what? We only want to do fixed debt right now. We don't want to do any kind of bridge debt. 
And it's really important for people to understand that you want to have the right debt based on the business plan. And it comes down to the property. If you're going to, let's say you have a heavy value add deal and you're going to increase rents by $400, $500, you're going to create a lot of value in this property. Well, if you have a 10-year fixed debt on that, you really won't be able to tap into the equity you've created. So if you do this and you knock that out in 18, 24 months, you kind of have to just sit there because you can't sell. The prepayment penalty is too high. You can't really refinance. You still have a, you know, a big fee there. So you're stuck just sitting on this equity and it's not the most effective way to capitalize for yourself and for your investors. So in that case, bridge debt, bridge financing would be ideal. Now, you still have some risk there with the bridge debt, so you need to offset that. You can offset that by having more reserves, you know, having a higher, you know, CapEx budget, you know, making sure you do other things to anticipate that. But there are a lot of different ways to look at it. On the flip side, you know, if you have a more stable property, let's say it's in a good location, it's cash flowing, you think demand is going to continue to grow, but it's not really a huge value add deal. You know, you can push rents 50 bucks, maybe a hundred bucks, but not to the point where you know you're going to create a ton of value over the next 24 months. Well, in that case, maybe you want a fixed loan. Maybe you do want that long-term debt and you want to be in a position to sell if you get blown away with an offer. But if not, you got a great cash flow on property here for the next, you know, five, six, seven years. Are you throttling your acquisitions right now or are you looking for opportunity? And if so, what are you looking for? We're, we're definitely looking. And I'm a firm believer that many investors should always be looking. There are some folks who shouldn't. I think if you're at a point where you and your company are, you know, you, you've reached all your goals and you're simply preserving capital, then you can, you know, you can cherry pick. You can sit on the sidelines and just buy when it makes sense to buy. But, you know, this is like the only industry I know of where as a business, we can decide that we're just not going to be do business. You know, could you imagine owning like a shoe company and just deciding, you know, what, market's a little crazy right now. Let's just not produce shoes right now. Let's just wait until next year to produce shoes. The reality is for us and our investors, we're all trying to grow our capital. You know, we're all looking to park our capital in, in cash flowing assets. We're looking to reduce our tax liability. We're looking to grow our assets. So we have to find deals for that. And for us, I just think that makes the most sense. The alternative is to do nothing and let you know inflation wipe away some of the money we have sitting in our bank accounts. And that just seems like a, a bad idea to us. So it's not that we're going on buying anything. We certainly want to be pragmatic in our approach. But I'm a firm believer that you should always be at least looking and analyzing deals because the market does change very fast. And you won't know the market has changed until it happens. So for us, by analyzing deals, seeing where we're coming in, talking to brokers every day, we get real-time feedback on where the market is headed, where interest rates are, you know, how how do our the industry, how the industry professionals look at the market real time, like today. So you only get that if you're looking. If you're on the sidelines waiting, you know, by the time things change, people are already doing deals and taking advantage of that current market landscape. So John, one of the things we're we're facing right now, we're just seeing in general is the investor sentiment is way down because either they got in a deal in the last two years, it's not producing what they thought, or they're just frozen because of what's happening in the market. How are you guys looking to overcome that that type of situation when all this opportunity seems to be ahead for us? Yeah, that's a real challenge. I think you know you guys were having a lot of folks are, are facing right now, and part of it is just having as many conversations as you can with people. You know, letting them know what's going on, why it's going on, but also going back to those fundamentals. You know, I think the reality is the last you know five or six years have been great for most department investors. 
And if you were accustomed to getting in and out of a deal in 18 months or 24 months and seeing a 2x, 3x return on your capital in that time frame, that could be great, you know. But now we're going back to what we pretty much have been underwriting for that same time frame is that, hey, five to seven year holds, you know, maybe a 2x multiple in your capital over that five to seven years. And it's not quite as sexy as, you know, maybe that that 2x return in 24 months. But that's the reality. And I think we just have to understand that there's always these market cycles. But again, apartment investing is is one of the most you know, secure and stable ways to invest capital. And that has, you know, remained true over the long haul. And even with these, you know, current instability in the marketplace, I don't think that changes too much. What are you most excited about in the next six to 12 months? Deal flow. I mean, for us, particularly because we we focus mostly on the Midwest and in the Midwest, because we don't have, um, again, the, the highs aren't as high, the lows aren't as low, it wasn't quite as wild for us over the last five or six years. And finding good deals was a challenge, but we're seeing more opportunities now than we've seen in the last three or four years. With that said, you know, rent growth is strongest right now in the Midwest compared to many other markets. And I think that the fundamentals that we believe in are, are starting to shine through. So cash flow first and foremost, if you've got cash flow, you get to decide when you sell an asset. If you have cash flow, a strong market where there's good demand, that gives you a lot of control and flexibility. So for us, we're starting to see more opportunities now. I think sellers are recognizing that they may have you know, missed that opportunity to, to really top out on the market. But if they need to sell, they there's still an opportunity to sell at a good number today. And you know, if they continue to wait, maybe that continues to drop. So we're starting to see more and more deals and opportunities. So we're we're trying to be aggressive in our actions in the sense of we want to look at a lot of opportunities. We're going to ramp up our partnerships and see more deals and opportunities. And ultimately, we're hoping that results in doing more deals in this year. Yeah. Well, what do you think is contributing to the increased deal flow? What do, what do you think has been, been going on? Because it, it was slow. We're starting to see some deal flow as well. We're more in the Atlanta area. And I think Atlanta mm -hmm. was affected more through a huge surge in rents and prices. And it's come down since then. So we're not quite seeing it yet. But what is, what is contributing in your market for, for a higher deal flow right now? Well, I think, you know, loans come and do is one thing. I just did a presentation at MFI Incon, and one of the things that jumped out was there's a report by TREPP, T-R-E-P-P, and there's $88 billion of apartment loans that are coming due over the next 24 months. Of the $88 billion coming due, 42% of those loans are considered to be at risk for refinancing. And that's because they either don't meet the basic DSCR requirements, debt yield requirements, or LTV. So when you have those figures, a lot of owners are looking at it and maybe they underwrote to sell, you know, at a certain cap rate on the exit, but because interest rates have shot up as much as they have, those those cap rates are no longer accurate. So they're trying to get out while they can. No one wants to be there with your loan expiring and praying you get the offer you need or praying that the bank will, you know, give you the assessment that you're looking for. So if they have time on that loan, they're looking to do something now. They're looking to do something while they have an option for a plan B or a plan C if necessary. So I think that's a big chunk of it. I also think that there are owners who have just made their money. They're ready to retire. They're ready to get out of the game. You know, COVID was a crazy time frame where, you know, I think some people maybe held on and wanted to see what's going to happen there. Or, or maybe they tried to sell, but the market just wasn't right at that time. Rents shot up. So maybe they got a little greedy. But I think now they're, they're recognizing that, you know what, everything we're seeing is that the market will take a slight decline overall. 
But I think if you're in it for the long haul, it makes sense to hold on. But there are a lot of people who I think were trying to time the market or trying to get out of the market. And maybe they've been waiting for the reason to or a sign that now's a good time to get out. And I think they've gotten that feedback. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is there's opportunity, but we're reminded that this is a, a long-term hold strategy, not a get-quick strategy. And we, I think we got spoiled over the last 24 months. And I think now it's back to normal. And we have, you know, we have to educate everybody that, hey, we're back to, we're back to normal. We're no longer have to put our you know, EMDs hard, which is good. So that's an improvement as well. So yeah, thanks for bringing that perspective, John. How can people connect with you and find out more about you? Yeah, two easy things. You know, one, we've got a great show called Multifamily Insights. You, it's available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And then if you just want to wrap your head around kind of this concepts, you know, whether it be being a passive investor or an active investor, we have a sample deal package on our website, casmancapital.com slash sample deal. And it's not a real deal. It's just a sample deal. So you to wrap your head around some of the terminology and just the deal structure. I know when I was trying to do my first deals, that was the thing that was kind of hard for me to grasp. So if you want to check that out, just go to casmancapital.com slash sample deal. John, it was great having you on the show today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Michael. Gary, great talking to you. Yeah, I want to follow up to that 3,200 unit foreclosure in Houston. There's that Wall Street Journal article that we referenced in the interview. And if you haven't read it before, go ahead and go ahead and read it. And I think John is is right. There was a a series of errors made that led to that foreclosure. It should have never led to that foreclosure. The problem is people don't know what to do with that kind of information. They think that, oh my gosh, 3,200 units, that's a large portfolio. That's obviously a sign for bigger, worse things to come. And based on John was saying what, what, and, and what I think, I don't think that's, that's necessarily the, the, the case. But what are some of the lessons learned from, from that, Garrett? What, what should we be careful yeah, with? And just, just for you guys that, that don't know exactly what's happening, some, there was a, an operator out there that lost 3,200 units back to the bank. And this, I mean, this has obviously made big headlines because this is over $200 million worth of real estate that was just lost, right? And, and so it can cause obvious fear if you don't know what you're looking at with regards to that. But the bottom line is this. That operator went into a situation where there was a business plan that was not not sound, and they went in and did the, what it appears to look like the slumlord way of doing business, and and the, and that never and you, works. You know something about that, Garrett? I do know enough about that to <laughs> in know your that previous in your previous life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's basically you go in, you buy property, you don't put any money into it, and you expect that it's just going to rise in value, and they made it even they made even crazier mistakes where they didn't put an interest rate cap on their variable rate loans. So there's just unlimited amount of interest that you can pay as, and you're and you're rising with the markets. And so you take really poor operations without getting the rent bumps that you projected and then adding an unlimited amount of debt service that you have to pay. It's just a recipe for disaster. That's how you're going to lose a deal that quickly. You know, well, luckily in our deals, we have cap we have caps in place we're actually hitting our rent targets we're actually putting money into the deals so if you do those things and you had a deal that was purchased during the time you know that there's a, a very high likelihood that you're fine but in this scenario it was just everything at one time and not to mention buying 3200 apartments at one time is insane on the operation side think about how many people you need to hire to make that stuff work it's it's just a lot of people a lot of volume even if you knew how to do the business well, absorbing that amount of units at one time is very difficult. Yeah, it's I, and I think it just highlights the fact you got to buy these things right. You need enough cash reserves going in. 
they didn't even, apparently didn't have any kind of cash reserves or a construction budget because they they appear to be running out of money four months after they bought it. Like, okay, even if they screwed up the interest rate cap, there should have been cash reserve to improve the property, which apparently they didn't have. And so, you know, here's here's the thing. It's 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 all the intention that we have. And we value add means that we're going in, we're actually creating some value, we're, we're fixing things up, we're making it a better place to to work. So, you know, does it when you're investing, how much does that story make sense? Does the story make sense? Well, if they're projecting $300 rent bumps, then how are they going to get there? Well, what's the construction budget? What's their plan for doing? And I really don't know how investors invested with these operators because if they asked those questions, they would have known the answer to that. So it is unfortunate and it makes all of us look bad, right? It, because we're all in this in this kind of together and it just makes us all more cautious as we, and reminds us that we need to be good operators, right? It's not like we're flipping houses where you make money, you know, when you buy, you really make money when you operate well, you know, fundamentally. And we were reminded of that thing where you can't just buy a property, sit on it for 12 months and sell it for a gigantic profit. Maybe there was a time for that, but <laughs> you know, no more. So I think that's a, an important reminder as well. We're really excited, Garrett, about some of the opportunities we're seeing. I think John talked about it. Midwest never really went up, and so it never really went down. This deal flow seems to be a little, little more steady. We're starting to see some of that, some of that deal flow coming of the two kinds of people that are selling right now, right? The kind that have to sell because they have their loan coming up. And then the other one who's been in that deal for seven to eight years are like, you know what? I've made my money. It's time to sell. Things are stabilizing a little bit more. So we're really excited about the opportunity that we're seeing. If you'd like to talk to us about that, talk to Garrett and I for Nighthawk Equity. Go to nighthawkequity.com and just schedule a call with us. We'd love to have a conversation, get to know you a little bit better and share some upcoming opportunities that we have as well. So we're excited about that. Hopefully you are as well. Catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Take the next step toward financial freedom by checking out our Freedom Vault, where you can find free resources to help you with apartment building investing. Whether you're an active investor just starting out or looking to scale your syndication business or looking to invest passively, head over to themichaelblanc.com slash vault to gain access to our Freedom Vault.